Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash radio4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. After a fire which destroyed several houses and two public buildings, a local government official wrote to his superior asking for permission to set up a fire brigade. His modest request for a force of 150 men equipped with fire engines and buckets was turned down. There were concerns that a fire brigade might become a focus of political opposition. This took place almost 2,000 years ago in the ancient city of Nicomedia in Asia Minor. We know about it because the correspondence between the local Roman governor, Pliny the Younger, and his emperor, Trajan, has survived. Pliny was a successful lawyer, born in the 1st century AD, who became a prominent member of the Roman administration. His greatest legacy is the hundreds of letters he wrote to friends, colleagues, and the Roman emperor himself. They describe life in ancient Rome at the height of its powers, in detail, from the law courts to dinner party etiquette, and even include a stunning eyewitness account of his uncle's death in the eruption of Vesuvius. With me to discuss the life and letters of Pliny the Younger are... Catherine Edwards, Professor of Classics and Ancient History at Birkbeck, University of London, Roy Gibson, Professor of Latin at the University of Manchester, and Alice Koenig, Lecturer in Latin and Classical Studies at the University of St Andrews. Catherine Edwards, Pliny was born around 60 AD in northern Italy. Before we talk about him, could you tell us about the extent and power of the Roman Roman Empire at that time? Well, the Roman Empire was really an enormous area. It stretched from the Atlantic coast to the Black Sea. It covered Syria. It covered Egypt. Um, it was a vast, vast extent of territory with a population of perhaps 50 or 60 million people. It was divided into around 45 provinces, and these were ruled from Rome by really quite a small number of, Roman, of, of senior Roman officials with a kind of a support staff under them. And it went into North Africa. Did you mention it? It did that? indeed. I mentioned Egypt. It covered North Africa okay. and goes and, and and indeed under the Emperor Trajan, it also includes uh, even Romania. And it made money from all these promises. How did it gather the money, and how did it get to be so rich? Well, the Roman Empire gathered money by various means um, from its different provinces, and some of the provinces were responsible for collecting their own taxes, and that's particularly true of some of the eastern provinces, such as Bithynia Pontus, where Pliny was later the governor. And this money was remitted to Rome, Also, and particularly it's used for paying for the very large Roman army of around 400,000 soldiers, which uh, helped the Romans keep control of their vast empire. Was there any sense in which Rome was always at war in one place or another? Yes, there were some periods of greater conflict than others, and um, the period during which um, we Pliny is writing his letters is one of the kind of relatively stable phases of the Roman Empire. What's known about Pliny himself, about his background? Pliny grew up in Comum in the north of Italy. From a, he came from a wealthy family. Um, his, uh, the most sort of distinguished relative is his maternal uncle, the elder Pliny, who's uh, very well known to us as a great scholar. Uh, one of his works is the, the Natural Histories, which has survived to this day and is a repository of all sorts of rather bizarre information. Um, Pliny was clearly a very talented young man. He had his early education in Comum, but later moved to Rome, where he learnt at the the, uh, from the, the distinguished orator Quintilian and rapidly established himself as a distinguished performer in the law courts in Rome. 
He came from the second aristocratic strand in Roman society, as I understand it. Could you say what the second was? Right. Well, the equestrian order, as, as, as it's referred to, is, they, they're the, as you say, they're the second tier, really, of the Roman aristocracy. Um, they're not, not the senatorial elite, although Pliny does go on to become a Roman senator, so he enters the senatorial class. Um, many equestrians are also extremely wealthy, and um, many equestrians fulfil um, official roles within the government of the Roman Empire. Roy Gibson, he had a very successful career in public life. Can you outline the steps that he took to make himself so, in the end, so prominent? The, the main steps in a Roman career are quaestor, praetor, and, and consul, and he made each of these uh, in, in, in quite, a, quite a short time. In his um, late 20s, after a series of minor magistracies and service in the army in Syria, he becomes quaestor. Uh, it's not just any quaestor. There's 20 quaestors, but if, if you're chosen to be the imperial quaestor, um, you accompany... What does a quaestor do? A quaestor, well, it's the entry point into into the Senate, and you're also a, a, a minor magistrate um, also. But he's chosen as one of the um, the, the imperial quaestors, so he's attached to Domitian, and he doesn't have to uh, undergo election. And Is he chosen that because he's passed exams or he's shown flair in the courts or...? It would be um, his flair in, in public speaking, which would show itself above all in the, the in the courts, because the quaestors would be expected to to to, to help um, emperors write their speeches, for, for for example. And then he continues to be closely associated with and to be promoted by Domitian. And in the year ninety three, he's praetor, which is a rather unfortunate year because it's the year that. Um, Domitian turns against the senatorial uh, aristocracy. There's a, a trial in which Pliny's in, involved and they're prosecuting a corrupt governor of Spain called Bibius Massa and his fellow senator uh, who's prosecuting happens to be a member of this clique called the senatorial opposition, sorry, the, sorry, the, the stoic opposition and it seems that, um, that there is a counter prosecution against his fellow prosecutor, Senecio, which then leads Domitian to attack this clique. Now, his fellow prosecutor is, is executed, as are several other members of the, of the Roman uh, senatorial class, but not Pliny um, uh, himself. He seems to escape and then is even promoted by Domitian to uh, a post called the uh, he's, he's, he's head of the treasury of, of, the, of the military treasury. So he was either a, a, a loyalist or a cunning careerist, both. Well, pos- well, he was not unlike many members of the Roman aristocracy. I mean, to to be in any position of power when Domitian is assassinated is is almost by right to have been favoured by Domitian. But it's what, how he deals with it in in the years after Domitian is is assassinated that makes him um, interesting. But he became a senator and then consul. He was the first person in his family to have to become a senator. So he's he's he's, he's leapt a class. He's had a very dis- more than distinguished career. And absolutely, his his, his uncle, the elder Pliny, uh, pursued a career at the equestrian level, where you become a, a minor official as, as a governor of a province. And the elder Pliny ends his career as commander of the Western Fleet, which is based in the Bay of Naples, uh, uh, in Mycenae, in the north of Naples, and that's why he's there when Vesuvius erupts in, 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 in AD 79. But when he gets to Rome, uh, uh, he inherits, uh, after, that, after his, his uncle dies, he inherits great wealth. Yes, uh, and he, he, also, he also inherits the, the name Pliny at that point. He's, mm. His name is Caecilius Secundus up until then. It's when the uncle dies, he gets the name Pliny, and he gets the uncle's estates as well. So he goes up the scale. He's well-known in the law courts. He survives this, this terrible 
purge or attack in the Senate. He becomes a senator, he becomes a consul, he becomes an augur, which is high priest. And then, uh, he, towards the end of his life, his, his, which was a rather short life, he, be, he was appointed governor in the Roman province of Bithynia Pontus. Why is that appointment, uh, why is that appointment made? Well, um, provinces are divided in, into into war zones and into peaceful zones. And um, the war zones, the governor is appointed by the emperor, and the peaceful zones, the, uh, the, the governor is appointed by the senate. But unusually, um, Trajan interferes and wants to appoint his special rem- his emperor. Special, Trajan, yeah. Yes, he wants he he wants uh, he wants to interfere in the appointment for 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 Bithynia Pontus. Why does he? Well, the reason appears to be that there is financial mismanagement among the cities. I mean, it's a very wealthy Greek-speaking um, area. It's just the area south and east of modern Istanbul. And there seems to be huge infrastructure projects in the cities. Um, they're building theatres, they're, they're building aqueducts, they're building baths. And a lot of the cities are getting themselves into problems through, through overspending or through bad planning. And he wants Pliny to go and sort this out. One of Pliny's areas of expertise is, is, is finance, because he's specialised in, in, in inheritance law, which sounds unglamorous, but it was very important in Rome. Yes, we've sort of rushed through his career, good inheritance law, but he also was to do with the treasury. He he spread himself around, didn't he? Yes, he did. He um, he, he of course he he was also a um, a published literary figure as well. So yes, he he covered many bases. Was this, as far as he was concerned, a step up? Was this a good thing to become member of a, a sorry governor of a province? It wasn't. Yes. It, not everyone wanted to be governor of, uh, of of a province, but it would seen as, be seen as a distinguished way to end your career. The most distinguished governorship um, outside the military provinces would be Asia, which is basically the uh, western coast of, of Turkey, and his elder contemporary Tacitus was uh, appears to have, have, have been governor of Asia. Uh, Pliny didn't quite reach that, um, that, 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 that same level. Alice Gernick, uh Almost everything we know about Pliny, come, Pliny the Younger, comes from his own letters. Can you tell us how many there were, and, and uh, were they intended for publication? Well, we have ten books of letters from Pliny. So books one to nine contain about 247 letters, all of them written by Pliny um, to over a 100 different addressees, members of his family, friends, acquaintances. Um, and then there's book ten as well. Um, which is rather different. That has another 121 letters in it. Um, and that's correspondence been between Pliny and the Emperor Trajan, most of it dating to the time when he was um, governor of Bithynia. Um, so we have in, in book 10 just one uh, correspondent, but in fact two letter writers, because in that book, unusually, we get replies. So 52 of the letters are replies from Trajan to Pliny. Whether they were all intended for publication or not, how closely these letters, what, what, what relationship they have to real letters that um, Pliny actually sent is a moot point and we'll probably never know for sure. The letters look like real letters. There are various letters that show that Pliny's clearly in ongoing correspondence with various people. Um, uh, but it's also clear from what Pliny says about the efforts he goes to to revise his law court speeches for publication, for example, that he's very keen on polishing, editing material prior to publication. So it's a reasonable guess that the letters that we have, at least in books one to nine, possibly also in book ten, are edited, revised, polished versions of letters that may um, have been sent as real letters at one point in time. He saw himself 
partly, as he was many things, as a literary man, and he saw this as part of his literary legacy, didn't he? Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, uh, he, some people wonder whether um, the letters are almost published as an insurance policy in case his law court speeches don't survive. Um, and he takes the opportunity throughout the letters to tell us all sorts of things about his, his literary life, his literary products. Can you give the listeners just an a, 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 a introductory spread as to what these letters uh, are about, the subjects he covered? Well, one of the things that strikes you when you read through them is really the sheer variety of topics that Pliny touches on. So he'll write to fellow authors, for example, um, exchanging ideas about work that is being um, uh, prepared for publication or things that have already been published. He'll write to members of his family. Um, He'll write to his wife, Calpurnia, saying he misses her when she's away or he's worried about her health after a miscarriage. Um, He writes to her grandfather to console him on the fact that he hasn't yet become a great-grandfather. There are lots of letters of request where Pliny is asking favours from people. So, for example, there's a letter to Tacitus where he says, I'm helping to set up a a school in my native town of Comum. Could you help find tutors? Um, There are letters of thanks when people have um, have done what he's asked and also replies to requests that people make of him. So, you know, there's one letter, for example, where someone has asked him to help find the husband, a husband for his niece and Pliny writes with some advice. Letters of consolation, letters that um, uh, give us accounts of the death or suicide of significant figures, letters of congratulation, letters of advice. He'll, he'll write to aspiring young orators, telling them, giving them advice about how to improve their technique, um, and along the way also we get all sorts of glimpses um, and commentary on um, life under Domitian and then life under Trajan. So really a huge variety of themes. It, is, was it odd for someone to address the emperor directly, as directly as he did, and to get answers to the letters, sometimes long answers, from the emperor? No, it probably wasn't odd. It's probably actually something that, that um, was just part and parcel of um, being um, a governor of a province. It's clear um, from other evidence that we have that there is a, a, an ongoing, regular correspondence between the centre of Rome and um, the provincial governors. The fact that they have survived is important, but... People, scholars like yourselves, say they have—they really do give a snapshot of a whole culture. Yes, absolutely. Um, so they—they they give us um, a, a snapshot of all sorts of images of Pliny's life, all sorts of aspects of Pliny's life, and through that we get glimpses of the literary world. We get glimpses of um, uh, how social relations worked, how um, patrons and clients interacted with each other. Um, uh, all sorts of advice. Pliny's asked for lots of legal advice as well about inheritance disputes and so on. Catherine, what what picture do we get of Pliny himself from this? Well, I think the picture we get of Pliny is really very interesting. Um, Initially, Pliny can seem tremendously self-confident and pleased with himself. He seems to be constantly... Very self-promoting. He certainly is. I mean, he's constantly giving us examples of his own behaviour as models of of, a proper way for for a a respectable Roman senator to to act. Um, But lying behind all that, there seems to be perhaps a, a deeper anxiety. It's very interesting how many of the letters are looking back to the past. They're not about necessarily what happened this week, what Pliny's plans are for the future, but he's constantly referring back to the reign of Domitian and his own behaviour under Domitian. Now just tell the listeners who Domitian is and why it's important, please. Domitian is the, the um, emperor who, uh, under whom Pliny's career really took off. Quite a long time emperor. For, for he emperors was indeed. He was, he was emperor until 96 when he was assassinated to become extremely unpopular. Um, Roy was mentioning earlier the kind of purge of, of the senatorial elite in 93, um, but 
Pliny had flourished under Domitian, and his letters are constantly reminding us of his own um, friendship, his own uh, relations with people who had been opponents of Domitian, to reassure us that actually he wasn't a bad guy. He was you know, a friend to Arilenus Rusticus. He was a friend to the, the, the kind of the widows and, and offspring of those who'd been exiled or executed. Um, he's very keen that we shouldn't forget that about him. Yes, but it is as if he's sort of um, making up for the fact that he was promoted by Domitian and, and a friend of Domitian's, I presume, but the letters written later say, oh, I was against him a lot of the time and supported those who were against him. This particular woman, Fania, was she called? Fania, yes, uh, who, Fania's who a got in terrible trouble. I was her supporter. I think she's a wonderful person. I'm being a bit, uh, I'm not flippant, but I'm just... Why don't you tell me what really was going on? Well, I don't know if we can ever know exactly what was going on, but um, Pliny seems to have been um, able to steer a course between um, offending Domitian on the one hand and alienating the, the, his opponents on the other hand. So he's, he's very keen to underline how he he himself uh, underwent kind of you know, he was in a perilous situation at various points and he even reveals to us that uh, when Domitian died there was actually an indictment against Pliny on his desk you know so he, he almost was prosecuted by Domitian and he was only saved by Domitian being assassinated I mean, the letters are wonderful <clears throat> but sometimes you just you really have to smile at the smugness and there's a dinner how to run a dinner party he said not for me getting dancing girls from Cadiz I have poetry readings and persons playing the liar. You think, some party, really. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's very keen to emphasise just how um, model his behaviour is not only in his working life, not only in the law courts, but also and as a host. In another letter, he talks about, with disapproval, about Roman um, aristocratic hosts who have a dinner party and they have three categories of wine for the different categories of guests. So the host and his close friends will have the really expensive wine, but then there are kind of, you know, the sort of lesser guests who have the cheaper wine. And, and the freedmen, the ex-slave guests, uh, they have the cheapest wine of all. And Pliny says, oh, when I give a dinner party, we all have the same wine. And someone says, oh, isn't that terribly extravagant, Pliny? And he says, no, 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 we all have the cheap wines. It's not <laughs> extravagant at all. So he's showing us both how, how he knows how to give a dinner party, and that a dinner party is about sharing equally, temporarily at least, with everybody you've invited. Um, but he's also not extravagant, and that's a point he quite often makes. You know, he's not a man for luxury. Well, Gibson, could you give us some a, a closer idea of the political times through which he lived? I mean, he was born in the time of Nero, uh, uh, but then, uh, as we know, he, he lived through a year of the four emperors. So can you just give us some idea of, of what was going on at the top that he had to guard against or deal with throughout his life? Well, the, the year of the four emperors would be when he was he was quite young when he was seven, so he would have have. Yeah, but this have was this was the resonances. This was the possibilities. Absolutely, yes. yes. And there was a terrible civil war in that year, and uh, the threat of civil war would come back later in in his career um, uh, under Nerva. But um, in between the death of Nero and. Uh, the, uh, the the reign of Nerva comes of Vespasian, who's the the, the father of uh, Domitian, and then Titus, and then D D Domitian himself. And as as we have already uh, mentioned, it's a time when he's closely promoted by Domitian, and he then tries to to live it down. In I mean, unlike Tacitus, who in the very first paragraph of his great work, the Histories, says quite openly, "I was promoted by uh, by uh, 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 by Domitian." 
Pliny seems to have tried to divert attention away from the fact um, that he was so closely associated with Domitian by attacking someone else in the Senate in the year after that Domitian died. And the idea, he accused this person of being involved in a trial and execution of one of the victims of, of 93 when Domitian turned against the Stoic opposition. And the emperor at the time, Nerva, didn't really want to um, didn't want to pursue this uh, this particular accusation because he wanted to keep everything nice and quiet and not stir up the embers. But it seems to have marked out Pliny as um, someone, the kind of person that, that the new regime would, would want to promote. And then he himself then becomes fast tracked towards the consulship. So even though Pliny himself was closely favoured by Domitian, he seems to be able to to, to somehow slip that that particular reputation quite quickly, but he keeps, as Catherine said, keeps on coming back to it throughout the letters to make sure that everyone's got the message that he's quite innocent. You can't blame a man for wanting to stay alive because I can't, if he hadn't uh, if he hadn't taken care, he would have been one of those executed. Yes, you? yes, the, ab- absolutely. But I, in he he criticizes others for for precisely that attitude in in the letters and that's he says that, that he was disgusted in the senate when he tried to start prosecuting somebody that, that this people in the senate shouted out you know let those of us who have survived live and so he attacks that 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 that, that attitude himself but the great thing about the letters is that it's very easy to see the um the attempts to to justify himself he ha- he hasn't taken such great care that we can't see it uh, Alice Koenig, uh, he he was a lawyer it seems he was a very successful lawyer indeed um, what insights into what was happening in the courts of that day do his letters give us um, all sorts of insights. So um, we get to see Pliny as advocate in all sorts of contexts. We've already heard about uh, one or two more political trials. We see Pliny acting for the prosecution in some really big trials, in particular against um, provincial governors who've been charged. It, Pliny acts on behalf of the provinces that they've governed um, and um, uh, brings them to trial for mismanagement or corruption. So whose side is he on there? Um, Pliny acts on he acts for the prosecution in a couple of cases Um, uh, so prosecuting governors on behalf of the provinces um, for the mismanagement of the governors Um, but he also takes on one or two defence cases um, a couple of governors who um, preceded him in Bithynia um, he defends them against charges that are brought um, about their time in Bithynia so we see him um, uh, he gives us in the accounts of those cases he gives us really detailed um, descriptions of the ways in which he puts his legal arguments together, the legal wrangles that go on behind the scenes about um, exactly what charges should be levelled, where these people should be tried, what punishments are admissible. We see him sharing the prosecution or defence with other notable figures, including um, Tacitus um, in one case. Um, And we also see Pliny flooring his opponents with the um, force of his rhetoric. Um, we also see Pliny in other um, in other legal contexts. So there are lots of letters where people write to Pliny for legal advice, in particular about inheritance inheritance disputes. Was the law a great force in Rome at that time, a time of, of assassinations of emperors and so on? And and yet this lawyer is going about his legal business in a methodical, continuous way with lots of detail, lots of orders, lots of cases. What was the, what was the status of it and the force of it at that time? Well, the um, law is is one place you always come back to to thrash out all sorts of things. So the law courts are places where you thrash out political ideas too. But I, did did the emperors ever say, "Look, I'm above the law. I can you 
get out of my way. I want to do this. Um, not in so many words, um, but we, you know it's very clear that emperors attend trials, and that um, you know there, there are one or two trials that Pliny um, talks about where the emperor Trajan or the, uh, never has been in attendance. Um, so in, not in so many words, but the emperor is present sometimes. Catherine, Catherine Edwards, two particularly celebrated letters contain an account of the eruption of Vesuvius in 79 AD, in which, which Pliny witnessed and where his uh, uncle, Pliny the Elder, died. Uh, and can you tell us uh, how he, when he came to describe these events, why he wasn't there with his uncle, uh, <laughs> first of all, when he came to describe these events and then discuss how he did it, please? Well... Pliny and his family were at Misenum, where his uncle was in command of the Western Fleet. So they're, they're sort of living temporarily on the Bay of Naples in 79. Um, and Pliny at this time is 18 years old. Now, the occasion for describing the eruption, it comes several decades later. And it ostensibly, Tacitus, the great historian, has written to Pliny and asked him for an account of the death of his uncle. Romans were very interested in accounts of how great people died. So this is a letter then written several decades after the event and I think that's an important thing to bear in mind. So Pliny describes how um, the, the events on the 24th of August 79, there's the, the sight of this terrible cloud in the shape of an umbrella pine. Now his uncle, who's completely fascinated by natural phenomena, uh, decides immediately he's going to set out by boat and, and go and have a closer look, see what's going on. So uh, off goes uh, Uncle Pliny's about to set off when a messenger arrives saying that some friends of his are in grave peril and want to be rescued. So what starts out as a scientific expedition becomes a rescue mission. Uncle Pliny sets off and he sails down to Stabiae, very in, in the vicinity of Vesuvius, um, and he, we're told how he... Um, greets his friends there who are all terrified. Uncle Pliny remains calm and thinks it's very important to communicate um, you know, it's calm to, to his companions and so he decides he's going to have a bath and have dinner. So they have this sort of normal evening almost. While Vesuvius is erupting. While away. Vesuvius is erupting all around them. Um, Uncle Pliny goes to bed but he's woken up before dawn because debris is falling so fast that he's actually going to be trapped in the bedroom if he doesn't come out at once. And at this point the whole party is terrified. They decide to go down to the beach um, and uh, actually younger Pliny tells us that everyone else is motivated by terror Uncle Pliny is motivated by reason as ever but Uncle Pliny, Uncle Pliny has perhaps been uh, um, a little bit too uh, brave because in the end he does actually die on the beach um, apparently uh, uh, suffocating rather than killed by debris because his companions do manage to eventually to escape and report obviously on exactly how bravely Uncle Pliny met death it's, um, it's not, this is something pointed out by the great Italian academic Umberto Eco that when you read the letters about the death of the uncle, Pliny means to give a very heroic account. But if you read between the lines, you can see that the, uh, the elder Pliny had no idea what he was doing. He had no plan. And that's why he he, he So you he believe Eco rather than the younger rather than the nephew. I, I do on this on this on this particular point, but it's clear that he had no I had no plan because the the, the, the winds are coming in um, uh, onto on, onto the shore. They can't get back out, and you, he could have tried to escape by land, I suppose, but doesn't try any of that. Just he goes to sleep, as Catherine says. 
But that doesn't that doesn't get in the way of the fact that this description is still today, I'm told, by volcanologists thought very highly of. Now, why is that? Well, he got it right, and he described volcanoes, as I understand it, in ways they had not been described till that point. Yes, I mean, Pliny does give us an awful lot of detail about the clouds. But the point is the detail seems to be accurate. Yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. Yes, I mean, we have, um, we're told that the elder Pliny took loads of notes and they may very well have survived with his companions who did manage to get away. Um, and, and then we also have the second letter that Pliny writes is his own experience of of watching the volcano and the consequences of that. From across the bay? From across the bay. Now, younger Pliny at this point is 18. Um, he's very studious and doesn't accompany his uncle on the grounds that he's got homework to do. His uncle's told him to get on with his Livy reading, so he's sitting there with his book. So he's, you know, just as the, uh, the older Pliny is perhaps being a little bit too heroic, the younger Pliny is perhaps also a little bit too oblivious to what's going on. Friends urge him that he really needs to do something. He and his mother need to escape, but they say, oh, no, we can't leave until we've heard what's happened to Uncle Pliny. Um, eventually, you know, the, the sky turns black. They, they kind of they feel they have to, to do something and to leave. They're worried the house is going to fall down on top of them. And they, they leave, they're followed by the townspeople and Pliny, you know, presents himself here as, as, as the kind of heroic figure leading everyone else. Although then they actually they stop and decide perhaps they're not going to go any further. Uh, and we do get a very strong sense of the complete terror that everyone must have felt. The sky's absolutely black. A lot of people think it's the end of the world. And Pliny himself confesses to thinking, I thought my life was going to end with, with what the world ending. I was just going to say that um, the, the type of eruption that Pliny describes, um, there's a lot of scepticism about it in the 19th century because this was not the kind of eruptions that people uh, had seen. And it wasn't until the eruption of, of Martinique, I think, in, in 1903, that people realised that there were these kind of super hot uh, paraclastic uh, flows and surges. And, and again, it wasn't really until Mount St. Helens and everyone saw it televised in, 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 in 1980 that uh, pe- that the, the people began to really put the Pliny letter together with with the paraclastic flows and surges. So there it was, was a proved lo- right nineteen year hundred years on. Oh yes, absolutely yes, indeed. Yeah, um, Alice Koenig, He's let's talk a little about Pliny as a literary man. He he wrote poetry. He the letters as a literary form. He liked to write to writers about writers. He went to reading groups. He organised reading groups. Can you can you develop that, please? Yes. Well, literary production and consumption are a huge recurring theme throughout books one to nine. So Pliny gives us all sorts of glimpses of himself as a writer. And Catherine's already mentioned that there's this wonderful image of Pliny as a very young man when Vesuvius is blowing up, um, doing his homework and, and and actually emulating his uncle. But and in the letters that he writes about Vesuvius, um, Pliny. The the younger is trying to be Pliny the Elder in terms of the detailed information about these natural phenomena because that's something that Pliny the Elder puts into his natural histories. Um, so, um, yes, Pliny writes all sorts of <coughs> verse. In particular, he apparently um, uh, liked to write uh, erotic love poetry. Um, we get lots of discussion of the ways in which he's constantly refining and revising his Did speeches. you rush over erotic love poetry, though? Did I rush over? <laughs> I think it's best to rush over Pliny's Fine. erotic love poetry. Um, it's, it's not of the highest quality. Fine. Um, well, in that case, <laughs> we must put it to one side. Oh, uh, yes. Um, uh, so he tells us, um, for example, about all the recitations that he goes to. And um, 
it, you know, we get accounts of some recitations that didn't go so terribly well, where you know the, the reading fell flat. Pliny also gets frustrated with other people around him who don't attend recitations as assiduously as him. He's, uh, Catherine's already mentioned that Pliny sets himself up as an exemplary figure, and he's exemplary in the literary world in the self-sacrificing effort he makes to, to keep attend, these book clubs going. To keep these book clubs going, um, and then he's constantly exchanging material with people like Tacitus, where they're clearly commenting on each other's work prior to publication um, and um, yeah he it's interesting these letters when we get these letters like the letters from the women at, at Vindolanda all of a sudden the, the great facade of the great Roman Empire society breaks down into a sort of something that's lived isn't it something that's easy to grasp but like a book club and like the can you come to my party at Vindolanda it's not, it's not dressy tonight that sort of thing anyway that's an aside Catherine uh, Let's, let's take him to Bithynia, where he's a uh, governor, and he writes to Emperor Trajan. Um, what sort of things was he asking of his emperor? Well, he consults Trajan about a whole range of issues. Um, some of them seem perhaps quite trivial to us, others more obviously significant. But some of the main concerns are about deployment of soldiers. That's obviously a very sensitive area. So when he's talking about you know, how many soldiers a senior official should be allowed to have as his, as his kind of bodyguard, um, you know, the Trajan's quite quite clear about, you know, not exceeding the prescribed number. Um, there's, as, as Roy's already mentioned, um, a, a lot of concern with um, spending that's been going on and these, these big building projects that the, the local towns in Bithynia Pontus have been undertaking and not bringing to completion. So he, he's constantly asking for surveyors and architects to be sent out to see if some of these problems, some of these half-built buildings can be kind of um, sorted out and, and made useful. Um, and, and also the administration of justice. I mean, that's a key area. He consults Trajan about, for instance, some, some people who've been condemned to, um, to be slaves in the, in the mines. Um, and it turns out some of these people, despite that uh, earlier judgment, have ended up working in a rather cushier role as public slaves. And um, Pliny's concerned as to what the proper course of action is with these people. Roy Gibson, this is the only book that contains replies, so you have Pliny's letters and Trajan's letters. Now, there's some dispute as to whether Trajan himself wrote all these letters, although his authority seems to be in all of them. It's very easy for us to assume a, a model where there's a, a civil service who are dealing with um, what seem to us relatively trivial replies. But I think there, you can tell from the letters themselves that it's very likely that Trajan did d dictate all the replies, because he gets irritated with Pliny, as in when Pliny asks for an architect, he says, don't ask me for an architect. They mostly come from the Greek-speaking parts of the empire. Anyway, you can find one. And occasionally, he, instead of replying to Pliny's main point, he'll go off on a tangent and he'll say, and, and he'll, he'll say, and I told you you had to sort out the, the, the corruption there. So they have all the marks of a man who is uh, dictating le letters on the hoof and Pliny writes to him two to three times a month and if he was getting the same number number of letters from all over the empire they say he's a very very busy man but it seems to be that was one of the main tasks of the of a, of a good emperor do we have a, an impression that Trajan had a consistent policy in province after province? For instance, he turned down the, the request for a fire brigade. Would he turn down fire brigade requests all over the empire? I'm, if there was a history of uh, political factions, political cliques growing up, then yes, I'm, I'm sure he would. But emperors, on the whole, want two things from provinces. They want peace and quiet, and they want 
taxes. They don't have a big imperial ideology beyond that. They don't sit there formulating policies to be uh, to be um, enforced across the empire as a whole. It's a very reactive model of government where governors send in requests and then he will take them one by one. How does Trajan come out of this, Roy? He comes out as... Well, the tone of the letters is quite amusing. It's 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 like a headmaster speaking to a, a senior prefect, as it were. There's there's all sorts of personal concern, um, which masks the fact there's an enormous gulf in status between the two. One has all the power, and the other one is 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 doing his bidding. But he comes out as a man who takes interest in 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 the minutiae of the empire, as in the fire brigades. You think that half the city of of Nicomedia had had burned down, but he says no fire brigades because they could turn into into a political faction. But he takes interest in even even minor cases, including, for example, the, the, the Christians community. That's fine. Ah, now that's what I was going to come to. Alice Koenig, we have a very significant letter where Pliny asks Trajan for advice about how to deal with the Christians, an increasing number, it seems, at that time in the province. Now, can you take us through that? Well, it's a fascinating pair of letters, 96 and 97. This is about 10. 110 AD. Yes. It? Um, it's fascinating, not least because it's one of the earliest non-Christian references right. to Christianity to survive. And in the pair of letters that we get, we get a glimpse of Christianity as um, Pliny anecdotally um, encounters it. And then we also get, in Trajan's reply, um, a sort of an an official line on Christianity. So Pliny writes to uh, Trajan, as so often in Book 10, to say, look, there's this knotty problem that's come up, um, and so I'm asking your advice. Um, He's he's never been present at trials of Christians before, and there are a few details he's not sure about, um, including what do you do with people who have been Christian but have said that they are no longer Christian? Was the basic problem? <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> was the basic problem at that time that the idea was if you worshipped anybody, well, you had to you worshipped the emperor, and they said, "No, we have one God uh, who is not the emperor; he is Jesus Christ." Well, what emerges from these letters is that that it's not actually a faith issue, really. Oh, really? Um, it's more an anxiety that Christianity is the breeding ground for political sedition, and that also there are um, acts associated with Christianity that might be potentially criminal. Um, Can you develop that? Well, you know, one of the rumours that floats around at this time about the Eucharistic feast, for example, is that it's potentially cannibalistic. Um, but then you know, there, there's a sort of suspicion of all sorts of sects um, because they might be inducing um, you know, slightly lawless activity. Um, so, um, so how does Pliny, when he gets his advice, how does he deal with the Christian? What does he do as a result of this? How do I deal with these people? What does Trajan tell him and what does Pliny do? Well, Pliny says, I'm waiting for your advice, but in the meantime, um, what I've been doing is dividing them into three categories. So um, the people who um, admit after being interrogated three times with full warning that if they say they're Christian, um, they'll be um, punished. If they admit, they go off for punishment. Um, actually, in the case of non-citizens, that's execution. Christianity is... Trajan confirms is a crime in itself. Um, the, the people who've denied that they were ever Christian are made by Pliny to um, revere the statues of the Roman gods and indeed the imperial uh, statue too, um, and they're dealt with very easily. And then there's this category of people he's not sure about, which Trajan gives him advice on. What about these people who um, were Christian but say they aren't now? And Pliny's been interrogating them and finding out more about what their activities were as Christians. And he, he says to to Trajan in his summing up that what he's discovered is that really Christianity is a sort of rather depraved, eccentric sect. 
um, Trajan's reply is, Pinny, you're doing the right thing. Here are some parameters. We don't hunt down Christians. Um, when people are... Fear false allegations, he says, doesn't he? Well, he's, he says that false... that he um, He's more worried about anonymous accusations. Yeah. Accusations that are circulating anonymously, he says, are not in tune with our age. So we don't want to listen to them. Is there anything to add to, to, to the Trajan Pliny correspondence, uh, which is as, as, as interesting as the Christians? Well, I think that is I mean, for many for many readers that has been the most fascinating of, of all of Pliny's letters in some ways because it is you know little did Pliny know but Christianity was going to take over the empire so <laughs> there is a kind of irony to, to reading that exchange. And is it unique as a as, as a, a description of? Christianity in, in, in the Roman Empire at that time? It's a very early description. I mean, we do have um, account, references to Christians from somewhat later, and, 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 a, and a fleeting reference, actually, in, in Tacitus to the treatment of Christians under the Emperor Nero, which, of course, was several decades previously, but then Nero is you know, an eccentric, uh, weird emperor rather than a sensible emperor like Trajan. Finally, we're getting towards the end, I'm afraid. Roy Gibson, what, what, uh, what's the current thinking among scholars like yourself of the significance of these letters? In the last decade or so, we've moved from using history, sorry, um, Pliny as a historical source. We really have been talking a lot today about Pliny as a source for history, and he's, he's very valuable. But in the last decade or so, there's been a movement to looking at him as, as a literary artist because the, there's, there, there's nine books, nine books of letters, uh, private letters, one book of imperial letters. And each of these books is arranged with the care of a book of poetry. Um, so they, there's there's careful um, a, a variety that will go on in each of the books, and there's there's symmetry at the beginnings and ends of books. He'll he'll have similar word usages and and so on, or he'll have some similar subjects that, uh, that 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 talk to each other. So it's been moving in the direction of looking at him as a literary artist and taking him as seriously as a, as any poet. Anything to add to that, Catherine? Well, I think that's absolutely right, and um, it, it is the sort of sense that you know it's very interesting. These letters are not in chronological order; but they're very they're very self conscious. They're presenting us a, a very carefully crafted portrait of Pliny as an exemplary figure. Well, I think that's all we have time for. Thank you very much indeed, Catherine Edwards, Alice Koenig, and Roy Gibson. And next week we'll be talking about complexity theory. Thank you for listening. There are many more Radio 4 arts and discussion programmes to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash radio4.